Whether you're a crypto newbie, an established investor, or operating a business in Web3, tax season can be an absolute headache. But it doesn't have to be a nightmare. That's where Crypto Tax Calculator comes in. The software platform founded in 2018 by brothers Shane and Tim Burnett, crypto fanatics who were fed up with the complexity of doing their taxes. As Coinbase's official global tax partner, CTC focuses on simplifying complex transactions, supporting over 300,000 currencies across Ethereum, Arbitrum, Optimism, as well as 1,000 other integrations. Sign up at realvision.com forward slash CTC and get an exclusive 30% discount with the code RV30 at checkout. Welcome to Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Friday, February 9, 2024. I'm Ash Bennington. I'm joined today by Brent Donnelly, president of Spectra Markets and a member of our RV Marketplace. By the way, if you are an RV member and want a discount to Brent's must-read macro newsletter, AMFX, head over to realvision.com forward slash marketplace. That's realvision.com forward slash marketplace. And by the way, just a reminder, uh, this video, subscribe to the YouTube channel. It really helps us out. Uh, always a pleasure to have you on, Brent. Great to be back with you. Big picture, where are we right now in markets? Hey, Ash. Uh, yeah, it's a pretty interesting time. Uh, I'm an FX guy, and funny enough, FX is probably the least interesting asset class right now. I mean, you <laughs> look at things like ARM and, and what Coco's doing and what stocks are doing, NVIDIA. Um, but I think the most interesting thing really is just like the continuing of the U S economy on cruise control. And like, you know, people, it, someone called it the, the Bigfoot recession. Like if you look hard enough at that picture, I think you can see Bigfoot in there, you know? So people, instead of looking at the headline data are trying to like dig through the household survey or whatever, like survey miscellaneous survey data or specific details or private data. But if you just look at the headline data, you look at claims, retail sales, GDP, non-farm payrolls, the U.S. economy is doing fine. And then at the margin, the countries where we thought they were kind of going to be toast by now, um, like Canada, New Zealand, and Sweden, for example, where there's like very high household debt and like high vulnerability to real estate, those countries are like just grinding through. Like Canada's had no GDP growth on you know 10% or something like 10% population growth over 10 years and in in the last like 3 quarters there's been no gdp growth and yet still the jobs market's okay like you you came out to canada jobs came out today and the, there's still jobs everywhere so the the this cycle is like no other cycle that we've ever seen by the way that was one of the phrases that struck me in speedrun this idea that it's just like no other cycle we've ever seen. And by the way, it makes sense. If you look at things uh, like uh, CPI, PCE, uh, go and look at employment charts. I mean, just there's just nothing like what we saw coming out uh, of the 2020 shutdown and then the huge spring back. So it makes perfect sense that we're in unprecedented, uncharted waters here. Uh, so it's great to have you on to get to talk about this. By the way, I should say S&P 500 right now, 5,026. So yes, we did hold it for the day uh, as the prices settled down here. Uh, Brent, talk a little bit about this, this idea of this uh, this Bigfoot recession. Uh, this is uh, this is coming out of a, of a note uh, that uh, was written uh, by who was it who wrote this note, Brent? Manoj. Yeah. What does it What does it mean? So, 
I think one of the most fascinating things about this cycle has been the amount of confirmation bias because whatever your view was, especially if you were bearish and you were calling for a recession, there's always something that you could point to uh, that, that would suggest that it's imminent. The biggest one to me is the soft data. So the survey data like ISM, NFIB, all the surveys of businesses and consumers showed an incredible amount of pessimism. And in a normal cycle, the soft data turns and then the hard data follows it. But in this cycle, it's just so completely different because there's sort of two, there's two cohorts. So the business cohort tends to be, tends to lean very Republican, especially NFIB is the most extreme because that's small business. So if you look at the, the Democrats versus Republicans of CEOs or NFIB, it leans heavily Republican. And there's been a lot of malaise on the Republican side because of Biden. So if you look at, just ask anyone, what do you think about the economy? And it comes down more to whether they're Democrat or Republican than to what's actually going on in the world. So that split has been huge. And then on the consumer side, essentially people feel real income. So how you feel generally is like, do I have a job and do I have more real money to spend? And when inflation goes up faster than wages, your wages, your real wages are going down. So that has made everyone feel really bad. <laughs> so that depressed consumer confidence. So politics depressed business confidence and, and rate hikes, of course, like fear of rate hikes. And then um, the consumer confidence was hit by, by real wages. But now you have inflation coming down. And at the same time, you have the odds of Trump winning going up and also just Trump being in the news and Biden fumbling last night, et cetera. Um, so my view yeah. is that the soft data will actually catch up to the hard data. And if you look at the hard data, like retails, like I, the ones I listed already, uh, the US economy has been strong, pretty much strong the, the whole way through. But then like, let's say you're, you're bearish and you're looking for a recession. You can look at the household survey right now, which I could go on for like 20 minutes about that. But I'm a very strong believer that the household survey is, is useless. Um, but you could, there's lots of things that you could look at to, to find bearish stories, like, or you just look at layoffs. So like layoffs have been going up lately, but then layoffs also were going up at the start of 2023. But that's like looking at expenses going up at a company and saying, oh, that company's screwed. You have to look at income and expenses. So for the jobs market, you have to, you can't just look at layoffs. You have to look at hiring. So people are pointing, oh, layoffs are up. But if everyone that gets laid off finds a job the next day, that doesn't, the layoffs don't mean anything. And that's what's been happening. So I, I don't like to use extrapolation as a forecasting tool. So I'm not saying that this is going to go on forever. But what I think you can do is take the most timely data and look at the hard data and make your assessment from that. And I think the more that you slice and dice, especially in this day and age, because like in the 90s, there was basically all the headline data and that was it, right? Now you have like 15 different private numbers, like for jobs, you've got jolts, for real estate, you got Zillow, for inflation, you got Trueflation. There's all these alternate data sources. So if you have a strong view that we're going into recession and you have confirmation bias, you can always find something that's going to confirm what, what you've already seen. So for me, right. it's Occam's razor. You look at the headline, the, the, the key data and have an open mind to the future that this data might not hold up forever. But to me, for example, claims comes out every week. It's not revised that much. It's kind of the aggregate of, of hiring and firing because you don't apply for unemployment insurance unless you've been laid off. And 
you didn't find another job. So I don't know. I feel like Occam's razor is the way. Just pick the simple approach. Look at what's actually going on and don't go too far into the weeds because the weeds are, people say the devil's in the details. And I think in this case, that's true. But the devil has been calling for a recession for 18 months. Yeah. Okay. So Occam's razor, this is the idea that the simplest explanation uh, is probably the correct one. I won't try and pronounce it in Latin, but let me ask you this, Brent. What does it mean when you do try to take this Occamist interpretation? What is the simplest story? And I think you're so right about the just overwhelming abundance of data that we have out there. You can craft a narrative that agrees with whatever view you have, because there are just so many data sources that you can pluck from uh, here in 2024. So let me ask you this. What is the overwhelming, compelling story that you see when you look at this from the perspective of trying to simplify and come up with the most likely scenario going forward? What does it look like? You mentioned uh, the election, uh, which is always a wild card when we have an election year, particularly one that's as politically contentious as of this one. What does it mean for you? What's the base case based on the data you see? So to me, the baseline is we were in secular stagnation, COVID happened, they put $5 trillion into the economy, and now we've kind of normalized to this like secular stagnation plus kind of thing. So yes, the rate of change of a lot of variables is slowing, but that's because we were in this hyper cycle that was like a massively overheated economy where restaurants were shutting because they didn't have enough employees. So to expect that to continue makes no sense. Like the 2021 economy was not sustainable. So to me, now we're coming back down. And then the tricky thing, of course, is that if you go from like overheated to recession, you're going to pass through some kind of middle equilibrium. But I think we're going to find stability at this middle equilibrium, which is kind of like what the economy was, say, in like 1718, like 2017, 2018, but probably with a little bit more inflation and a little bit more confidence because... To me, being at the zero bound in monetary policy was bad, not good. So in, right. in some ways, normalization is actually good. Um, you know, it gets money moving around. A lot of people actually are getting more money because cost of living adjustments to pensioners are up. Interest, people that have money in the bank are making interest. Obviously, stocks are going up. Housing's still at the highs. So the, the idea that um, like the money just disappears after you put it into the economy is not really right. I think we're we're kind of finding a new equilibrium, which is a more stable equilibrium as well, because we're in a very unstable, overheated equilibrium and or non-equilibrium in 2021. And I think now we're kind of finding our happy place. And that doesn't mean it's going to last forever, but nothing lasts forever, right? So like clock the clocks that are stopped are correct twice a day kind of thing. So to me, one of the hardest things though is that the soft landing thing that I'm kind of describing, it's kind of priced in now. So markets-wise, that makes it a lot harder. Hey, everyone. We're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Whether you're a crypto newbie, an established investor, or operating a business in Web3, tax season can be an absolute headache. But it doesn't have to be a nightmare. That's where Crypto Tax Calculator comes in. The software platform founded in 2018 by brothers Shane and Tim Burnett, crypto fanatics who were fed up with the complexity of doing their taxes. As Coinbase's official global tax partner, Crypto Tax Calculator focuses on simplifying complex transactions, supporting over 300,000 currencies across Ethereum, Arbitrum, 
Optimism, as well as 1,000 other integrations. It's as simple as connecting your wallet, pulling in all your transactions, and following the automated suggestions to quickly and accurately calculate your tax obligations. Finally, 2024 is a year when crypto investors can do their taxes with speed and confidence. Make taxes this year easy and affordable with Crypto Tax Calculator. Sign up at realvision.com forward slash CTC and get a 30% discount with the code RV30 at checkout. Well, let's shift gears here and talk a little bit about asset prices. Uh, let's take the macro and superimpose it on what you see happening in markets. You had two great charts uh, earlier out on Twitter. I don't know if we can bring them up on the screen. The first one uh, is the S&P sector weights. Uh, so looking at this chart, and this goes back uh, this goes back a, to, to 1990s. So this goes back uh, some 35 years. It's a really interesting and compelling chart when you just see uh, the massive outperformance of Infotech and comms relative to everything else in the market. It's just leaving it behind. So essentially what that chart's showing, and that one speaks to me because I was trading in 1999 and I grew up in Ottawa, which is where Nortel was based. And the big obvious tell in the dot-com bubble in Canada was that Nortel became 40% of the entire Toronto Stock Exchange. So right. there's a limit, obviously, to how much things can become as part of the economy. Like Infotech can't be 102% of the stock market. So there is some kind of upper limit, which is obviously 100%, which it can't get to. And so like trees don't grow, grow to the sky. At some point, you have to start wondering like, okay, is does this make any sense? And so the chart shows that Infotech is getting close to 40% of the S&P, which was, I think it peaked at 42 in 1999. So that, that yep. red line shows percentage of S&P that's, that's information technology. Okay. And you can see actually, interestingly, we peaked up there uh, at, at the top of the hypercycle as well in the meme stock mania and all that. Um, but we're getting back up there. So, but then if you, and you can the still other, see the 2000 spike on that as well. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's shows the percentage that, that Infotech is of the entire stock market, which people know like mag seven and all that is big. But then if you go to the other chart, it shows operating margins. And so one big tell in the dot-com bubble was price to sales is what people used. And like the guy from Sun Microsystems has a famous quote that said something like, we would have to grow at 25% for a hundred years to, to make the stock go to where people have priced it kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and Cisco was the same. It was like 40 times sales. And if you back test every large cap stock that has ever got to 40 times sales, it's like the worst EV trade in the world. It, the, like something like 12 out of 15 of them dropped 50% and three of them went up or something like that. I was actually just uh, telling uh, my younger colleagues about uh, Cisco and talking about uh, NVIDIA, not that it's a direct comparison. But look, Cisco, if you look at that chart, uh, Cisco's never regained the highs that it achieved in what, what, whatever the year was, 2000, I guess, spring of 2000. It's just yeah, never, ever got parallels back. too, because they're both like the pick and shovel um, play for the industry, right? Like Cisco was building the network that people needed to, to use the internet and NVIDIA is providing the chips that people need for AI. And what ended up happening, it was that eventually it was never really like Cisco did anything all that wrong. It's just that the, everyone bought all the networking equipment they needed. And yep. then there was no network, there was no more equipment needed because everyone had it. So 
it, it basically got the market got saturated um, also by competitors. So, but the interesting thing is if you bring up that other chart of price to sales versus operating margins, the big difference now, and like I'm the last person that will ever say like, ooh, we're in a new paradigm or this time is different because they that's those are crazy words to say because they're never never end up being true. But right. there is some truth to it, even though I, I cringe when I say it. And that these companies are not not really Nvidia, but some of the other companies are borderline monopolies or oligopolies that are printing money and their operating margins are so high, right? Like look at the the operating margins in 1999 when price to sales was where it is now. And then look at operating margins now. And I think it's a little small, but I think the y-axis is something like 10 and 22 or something. So operating margins are basically double. And in the end, that's how much cash they're pumping out in theory. I mean, it's a bit more complicated than that. And that's important, right? Like that's so these companies are just like incomprehensibly big. Like the other day I was comparing Microsoft's net income to the top hundred companies in Canada. And that includes like RBC, TD, Bank of Montreal, like huge companies that, that, and that again, those are oligopoly companies too. So those are right. juicy, juicy businesses. And Microsoft makes more than like the top 30 or something. I think you have to get, get add the top 30 or 40 companies in Canada before you get the same net income as Microsoft. So and by the way, such an important comparison, the way that you're doing it, they're basing it on net income. We often hear that uh, with regard to market cap, but actually looking at net income, how much cash are these companies throwing off? Boy, that's a compelling and interesting statistic. Yeah. And it's just absurd how much money these companies are making. Again, not necessarily NVIDIA yet, but um, Microsoft and, and Amazon and all that. It's just they have really high margins. So I don't know. My My challenge with these is that to me, like 21 was very much more obviously similar to 01 in terms of just like the total hysteria. Um, whereas I feel now there's actually a lot more skepticism than there was in, in 99 or in 2021. So yeah. it's not as obviously a bubble to me. I mean, like I said, I, I, it's hard to, to say like it's a new paradigm, but it, it can neither be a new paradigm nor a bubble. It can just be a bull market, right? And maybe this is just like a more of a standard bull market. And there's always the mistake of saying that every bull market is a bubble and just a lot of bull markets are not, are not bubbles. Like housing in Canada, people have been saying it's a bubble since 2013 and it's 11 years later and it's probably doubled since then. So yeah, I, it's risky to call everything a bubble, but then obviously bubbles exist. So it's a, it's a tough one. Well, it's the Keynes comment about how markets can remain irrational longer than you can stay solvent. Uh, by the way, uh, housing markets generally a little bit different than more liquid asset markets. Obviously, higher transaction fees, a little bit slower. Uh, when you deal with things like equity bubbles, they can collapse very quickly. Uh, mm -hmm. When you talk about those days, 2000, and maybe some of the skepticism now is that uh, Brent, folks who are our age actually remembered. I was working on Wall Street. I was one of the young guys back then. And I remember uh, when that uh, Judge Penfield Jackson decision came out, I guess in the April or May of 2000. I remember I was at Credit Suisse Private Banking and going up to the trading floor and just being like, man, I got to see this and seeing that chaos and that panic. And when you had some of those experiences, boy, it stays with you. Uh, one of the great things about finance, one of the few things in this world that we just keep getting better at as you get older is you just have more models mentally to compare things to greater frame of reference. Right. You know, it's really interesting. There's a lot of data on this that People are so influenced by their formative experiences, whether it's like if you grew up in the 70s, then you're always worried about high gas prices. 
if you grew up in the 90s, you're, you're always worried about tech bubbles. If you grew up in, or if you came into the business in 08, you, you're always short because you always think stuff's going to crash. Um, it's an it's a interesting bias that is difficult to get rid of because right. there's one thing to, I remember talking to Jim Grant about this one time. And I said to him, like, why does everyone, why do you think people just keep stepping on the same rake generation after generation? And he's like, you can read all the history books you want, but until you actually feel it and you, you get step on the rake and it smashes you in the face, that's when you learn the lesson. You don't learn the lesson from reading like reminiscences of a stock operator. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. So it's, it's so true. I remember my grandparents and all of their money just went into real estate because of that visceral. You remember what right. the 1930s were like, you, nope, it's real estate. We'll buy houses. We'll rent them out. Nope. Not buying stock. Well, that's a decent call. <laughs> it, pro it probably was. Hey, listen, I want to ask you about one other thing. I was actually watching last night, the conversation that you and I had in April of 2023, uh, right after the beginnings of that little mini regional banking crisis mm. that we had. Uh, there's some stories uh, going around today, one coming out of Semaphore, an interesting one talking about the risks of CRE, commercial real estate, of course, uh, and the risk that some of these loans are disproportionately skewed uh, to a smaller sector of banks. I don't know if we can bring that chart up, the chart from Semaphore, uh, but it really is an interesting one. It's a compelling one. Just to bring things full circle, I know this isn't where you spend most of your time, uh, but because we had this conversation the last time you were on in April of 2023, boy, it's uh, it's interesting that we have this uh, sort of rhyming moment here uh, where we're talking about regional banks again. Uh, any thoughts on this and whether or not this could be a place where there is some risk learning. I'll add one more one more thing here, uh, which is what's happening right now in office space. I just want to throw this out to get your view on it. Uh, my view is that we're probably never going back uh, to the 2019 model of five days a week, 40 hours a week, the Mad Men era, take the train into the city uh, and sit at your desk for eight hours. What are the secular changes that we're looking at? What are the potential risks here? Yeah, there are some parallels to 0708. Like, I don't think it's close to being the same because at that time, it was the big banks that were over-levered, and now it's the small banks. So to me, it just seems much less scary. Like a cynical take, which I, but I, I think an accurate take, is that these banks will just get gobbled up. And I don't know, my personal view is that you don't need 4,000 banks in a, in a country of 230 million people. So you know we've gone from 10,000 to 4,000, and we're just going to probably go to 2,000 if you look at these these like the SNL crisis or whatever there's uh, these moments these these overlevered moments tend to be when the small banks get gobbled up by the big banks uh, but there are some interesting parallels like there's there's been some pain in Germany in German banks as well from US CRE um, and to me that's kind of interesting because a lot of the sort of shockwaves went through like the the Brian's banks hypo banks whatever in Germany where they bought the the crappiest part of the mezzanine stuff on the CDO squared stuff. So I, I think it's definitely worth watching and it's interesting, but in the end, I think it's a fade because these banks are not systemic. So as much as like those individual banks, there's probably a lot of single name plays where the banks will go to zero or, or something or get bought for two bucks by JP Morgan. But I just, I don't see it being systemic. But I, the one caveat I would say is like, I'm not an expert on, on the banking system. So I'll, I'll be more like, for me, this kind of stuff, because I'm more of a trader and I, I tend to have more like short-term time horizons, is this stuff is just like super, super on my radar. And I'm trying to gather as much information as I can 
because the thing you need to know if you're if you're trading this is more like for traders but is what are the names i should be watching so like if if there's if you talk to someone who's a professional that trades regionals they'll probably tell you like okay dude these are the six banks that you should probably be worrying about and you should have those six banks up on your screen because one of them is going to drop 18 percent in five minutes and you're not going to know why but you probably want to you probably want to buy 10 years on that you know what i mean so as a trading thing i think having these these themes on your radar and like not even being expert in them because that's impossible but having a high enough level of of awareness of what what matters and what doesn't i think is is more key than making a forecast of the ultimate impact on the on the economy yeah we're gonna get some questions in just a minute because we've got some good ones coming in from our audience but first two quick points if you're looking at outstanding commercial real estate debt remember the office space piece of that is only a relatively small component there's multifamily housing and some other things in it uh second point brent i guess the if you wanted to play devil's advocate on the uh on these small banks question when you look at the outstanding amounts uh, of the debt outstanding on that loan on that uh, on that chart that showed the loan uh, positioning i guess you know one of the risks is if they are large banks they're easier to repair you can flow the money to them uh, rather quickly i imagine when you were talking you're talking about how does america really need 4000 uh, community banks there were some community bankers out there with a vein throbbing in their temple uh, who believe uh, that as many people do, that one of the reasons why we have such a vibrant economy is that we have community banks who are able to lend uh, in more targeted ways, sector by sector, regionally, uh, and some other points. Um, so with that said, uh, let's move into some of our questions here because we've got some really good ones. First one comes to us from, is this it on YouTube? Does Brent have a view on Bitcoin? Is BTC in a having pump? By the way, Bitcoin right now around 47,500, bit of a rip. So I do have a view, but it's kind of boring. Um, my main view is Bitcoin that, needs more boring. Give yeah. us a boring view. I'd love to hear that. I think we're going to see a slow decline in volatility. Um, there's there's a couple of reasons. One, or the or two, the two main reasons are that market cap and liquidity are correlated to volatility. So the price discovery period for Bitcoin to me is kind of over. Like we are in some kind of like, yeah, maybe it can go to 75K or whatever at, at some point. Um, but my view generally is that volatility is going to go down. So professionals trading it, I think should be long, but selling calls because I think ball is just going to keep going lower and lower. And the amount of liquidity that's going to be generated by the by the ETFs, essentially, like I'm, I think it will end up going up simply because of debasement in general and i so to me and i know this is sacrilegious but to me i view it more as like a tech proxy and less as you know a new currency system or like a libertarian um fix all or whatever to me it's slowly become institutionalized a la ben hunt and it's like bitcoin with a little tm beside it and it's more like a flow uh, another fun thing to trade for people, but not really anything all that different from trading NASDAQ futures. And I think the evidence kind of supports that. Um, and then because of the the larger participation and higher market cap, both of those things like higher liquidity, higher market cap is generally by definition means lower vol. So, I mean, actually there's been times when NVIDIA has been trading more vol than Bitcoin. So I, and then I also think there's a very large constituency of people that are just perma long, obviously like hodlers or whatever, 
who, as we get up to uh, above 50, it like between 50 and 60, will just be trimming, um, including institutions. And then the flow that you're hoping for from the, from the ETFs, I just don't think it's going to be that rampant above 50. So to me, that means like something like 38, 48, uh, sorry, 30, like 48, 49 was the top after the, the, um, but I think we could take out that. So like, say, I think something like 38.55 and probably for a long time. So like I would be buying in, in the, in the high thirties and selling in the, in the low fifties. Talk about veins in temples throbbing. The Bitcoiners are, are apoplectic right now, but and I don't mean to, I'm not disparaging yeah. it as I, as in any way. I just think the evidence kind of shows that it's become like a wall street NASDAQ futures proxy with some interesting other features. Brent, I think it's so important to get alternate views out there uh, on it. It's such an interesting one. And you've got some data uh, that potentially backs the thesis. So important to have them on uh, and explore them. Next question, Paul English, one of our regular viewers here. When will traders have an AI tool to examine all this data? Boy, what a great question. Well, some of that stuff exists. Like Toggle is, is I, I don't represent them. I have no viewpoint on them, but I know they do it. Um, actually in Bloomberg now, if you type a, a ticker and then AID, it tries to spit out like the most important stuff about that thing. So if you don't know what's going on in Tesla, if you go TSLA, equity, AID, which is like, I guess, artificial intelligence, I don't know what the D is, and go, it gives you information, kind of like those sports articles that are written by a bot. Um, so it'll give you like, this. it's up 4% and here are the headlines and this and that. So, and then I think on the trading side, like neural networks, machine learning and AI are kind of overlapping on the trading side. So I think on the trading side, there is already kind of like AI type of algorithms as well. So I feel like it's, it's part of the ecosystem and now as much as LLMs are part of the, you know, copywriting ecosystem, which is not very much yet, but will continue to grow. So I, I think it's a good question and it's, it's happening. Are you playing with that technology, Brent? I mean, it really is incredibly compelling, at least in theory. Are you regularly interacting with the AID function? Uh, yeah. Well, the only thing I use it for is stuff that I don't know about. So like if I put in a currency because I'm a currency guy, it's going to tell me all kinds of stuff that I already knew. But right. if someone's saying like, oh, look at that stock is up. By the way, is it right? Is what uh, it's telling you on currency? Because then you've got an expertise yeah. against the. Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of random. Like it's it's like just looking at a bunch of stuff and like Jackson Pollock style, throwing a bunch of spots and you look at them and they're, they're, it's accurate information. Whether it's like the most useful is not always the case, but I'm sure it'll get better. <laughs> but if someone says like, hey, look at ARM, like is up 45% and I've like, I have known nothing about ARM, then I'll go ARM equity AID and it'll say like, it's up because of this, this is a three standard deviation move you know, the gap on the open was 8% or whatever. It'll, it'll give you some useful information. It gives you background. All right, talking of art, paint us a more representational picture of your final thoughts, key takeaways uh, from this market. So, I mean, I think much as I've been saying for a while, it's just the path of least resistance is the US economy is on cruise control, asset prices are supported, and you need something meaningful, not necessarily like a massive CRE shock, but you need something meaningful. And actually what that thing might be, in my view, is reacceleration of the economy and of inflation. So you just saw that in New Zealand last night, uh, a lot more hawkish expectations there. 
And uh, are we out of time or can I go for like 60 more seconds? No, talk, talk about this because this is okay. really interesting. We talked about this before we got on air. There's a potential outlier uh, contrarian case. Talk a little bit about what the Bank of New Zealand may be saying. Okay, I wasn't sure if we had to cut at because it's 4.30. Um, so I, I just got back from Brazil and the hedge fund industry there is unbelievable. It's so big and so sophisticated. And I think a lot of people wouldn't realize that. Um, but when you go down there, there's just so much money in the hedge fund business. And so I go to all these funds, like I probably met 100 people at 40 meetings or something like that. And this sounds like an exaggeration, but it's not. Every single person that I talked to was received rates. So every single person expected yields to go lower in some country, whether it was like Europe, New Zealand, Brazil, whatever. And I was kind of like, that's almost unbelievable to get 100%, you know, on, on a view. And then my buddy who just did a similar kind of thing in London said it was the same thing in London. So many, many, many people expect yields to go lower and very few people expect yields to go higher. So to me, there's an asymmetry there and I wouldn't trade up that on its own. But then to me, I look at like, wages are still strong, employment's still pretty strong. Gasoline prices just hit a four month high today. Shipping's adding a little bit. To me, like housing's gonna keep going up. Um, so to me, I think we might've reached the bottom for inflation. And this could be like a mid-cycle slowdown kind of situation where, like I was saying at the top of the show, the soft data catches up to the hard data, things kind of get better. And then all of a sudden, so in New Zealand, they had cuts priced, some of the least cuts, like the US is cut priced for five cuts. I think they were priced for two or three at one point. And now the market's actually expecting them to hike in February. So it's crazy sounding, but I think it's worth even keeping an open mind. Maybe the Fed doesn't cut this year. Maybe the, maybe the next move from the Fed's a hike. I w I'm not betting on that, but I, I'm more in the, in the, of the view that modest reacceleration is actually more likely than recession. See, that was definitely worth running long for, uh, your point, whenever there's 100% consensus, always a little bit dangerous. So mm. important to take the contrarian take. Brent, what a fantastic conversation. Uh, 30 minutes just flew by, fastest 30 minutes in financial television. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. And thank you all so much for watching or listening to Real Vision Daily Briefing. We'll be back uh, Monday, same time, same place. See you then. We hope you enjoyed this episode. At Real Vision, we arm you with the expert knowledge, time-efficient tools, and a powerful network to help you succeed on your financial journey. Get a taste of financial freedom with our free offer at realvision.com forward slash free.